0: Get this on your calendar on two announcements, actually. I think I've announced one, but um, October the 13th, a Saturday, we're going to have our annual fall picnic. We've been doing one in the fall, one in the spring. We're going to scale down to just one in the fall. But this year we have invited Country Bible Church in Brenham to join us. Uh, Mike Smith is the pastor, and I asked him... if. He had uh, if enough of his uh, people in his church, if he had enough people to field a volleyball team that we could beat. So we're going to have a volleyball challenge. We want to make sure we have enough people to uh, take on Country Bible Church. So they have accepted and we're looking forward to that. The other announcement is that on Saturday, November the 10th, there's going to be a um, what would you call it, a seminar at the at St. Mary's Law School in San Antonio where they have the Center for Terrorism Law where Jeff Adicott is the direct founder and director of the Center for Terrorism Law and they're going to have a one-day seminar on radical Islam. And they have uh, several speakers who will be addressing the group that day. It's anybody can come, free admission, and anyone can uh, is invited. It's going to be held at the law school. I will get more information. They produce some very nice brochures. We'll have copies both electronically and physically. And he has asked me to speak to the issue, to be to be one of the speakers, and to speak to the issue of radical Islam. And I think it's so important for people in this country to understand that Islam is in this idea of radical, if you're Islamic and you believe in the Quran, like we believe in the Bible, that is, you believe in a literal interpretation of the Quran where you're going to interpret it in the same way you would interpret a note from when you were 16 from your girlfriend or boyfriend, interpret it literally in the same way you would interpret instructions from the IRS, or if you were to uh open up uh piece of mail that was telling you how to find a particular piece of treasure you would interpret that literally that's the idea if you interpret it, uh, the Quran and the hadith literally then you're going to be a radical muslim because that is their embedded theology so it should be fun and interesting to take on this particular topic and we're going to i hope i think we're going to be able to videotape it and that will go up on the internet. If they don't, I think they have equipment. But if they don't have equipment, or if they don't have the kind of equipment we want, then we'll take our equipment. Bruce has already signed on, volunteered to uh, haul stuff up there to get that going. So that will be on November the 10th. And there, I already know a couple of people who are making hotel reservations so on that Friday night so that they can be there. So that should be an interesting week. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can be uh, spiritually prepared, or make sure you're spiritually prepared to study the Word this evening. If necessary, that gives you the opportunity in silent prayer to use First 1 John 1, 1.9 and to confess any sins so that you can make sure you're in fellowship and prior to studying the Word this evening. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, this evening we come to you, and we're particularly mindful of two current events that are taking place today. One is the beginning of the 2012 Republican Convention in Tampa, and the other is that um, Hurricane Isaac has just made landfall in Plaquemines Parish in uh, Louisiana. We pray that you would uh, watch over those who are in New Orleans, that this would not be a devastating quake and that it would also be an opportunity for many Christians to rise to the occasion to serve others to take opportunities to uh, be a witness in their life and with their lips to those who need to hear the gospel and to be gracious in their uh, in the way they take care of those who are in need father we pray for those who are meeting in tampa we pray that you would guide and direct those who wish to lead this nation. We pray that you would uh, give them wisdom, that they would understand what right is and what wrong is. We pray that you would give those who seek to do harm to this nation uh, difficulties, that you would put difficulties in their path, and that those who would seek to strengthen this nation, those who would seek to get us onto a fiscally responsible and legally responsible path would do so. And Father, we pray for this nation, for those who are serving in the armed forces, those who serve locally in in, uh, police, various police organizations and uh, firemen that you would watch over them, those from this church, those who are believers who are serving in Afghanistan and other posts, frequently have opportunities to uh, share their faith. And, Father, we know that it is in times when people have their their lives in harm's way that that is when they uh, begin to think seriously about their eternal destiny and that you would use the ministry of this church through all of the different Internet ministries and other things that are going out to reach people for Jesus Christ. And, Father, we pray now as we study that you would help us to be further armed in our souls with the information from this study that we might use it as we proclaim the gospel to those who need it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing in a study of Acts, but we are not in Acts. We are in Isaiah chapter 53. The reason we are in Isaiah 53 is that in Acts chapter 8... There's an episode where one of the key people in Acts and one of the key, previously a key individual in the church of Jerusalem, now he has moved to Caesarea by the sea with his daughters, this is a man named Philip. And Philip is focused on, in terms of his evangelistic ministry in Philippians chapter 8, he is proclaiming the gospel, first in Samaria and now to this Ethiopian uh, eunuch. This Ethiopian eunuch is uh, serving a, a position that would be close to Secretary of the Treasury. It's a high position in the government of, of Ethiopia, which at that time would be close to to uh, uh, modern Sudan. And it, he is um, uh, he is obviously what we called identified as proselyte of the gate. That is someone who is he's a believer in the God of the Old Testament. He is reading the Old Testament when God the Holy Spirit brings Philip to him to explain what he is reading. There are a lot of dynamics going on there that I think it's important for us to understand in terms of evangelism. It is our responsibility, the responsibility of every one of us to be a witness with our life and also to always be prepared to witness. And to be prepared to witness means that, number one, we need to understand the teaching of Scripture, but number two, you ought to have memorized. And the promise book uh, that we put out is out. I know I saw some out in the fellowship hall. There's some in the foyer. There's a section at the beginning with verses related to evangelism. Every single Sunday morning, I go through a group, a collage of evangelistic verses, mostly from First uh, John, the Gospel of John, some from First John. Focusing on the gospel, if you've been listening for any time, you should have those memorized by now just from listening. And that should equip you. That's why I do that is so that if you lack the discipline to go home uh, and memorize scripture, that if you listen to me long enough, you'll just either go to sleep at the beginning of every class or if you listen to the verses, maybe you will get them memorized and that you will at least have a few verses that you can paraphrase, if nothing else, if you get in a op- get an opportunity to witness to someone, because that's one of the primary missions that we all have is to uh, be a witness, and that means to be able to explain to other people why we believe what we believe, and to answer their questions. And this sometimes is a uh, opportunity where we just have a a uh, one shot. Uh, opportunity. It's just, a, it's just a, uh, a moment in time. I wasn't here last week. I had to have a, a little uh, test, medical test run on uh, Wednesday morning, and I had to prep for it on Tuesday night, which means I couldn't be here on Tuesday night. I went in for it on Wednesday morning. They put me on the table, and the nurse is taking blood pressure and all this other stuff, and she's telling me about the anesthesia. And she said, uh, and she told me what it was, and I said, is that the stuff that killed Michael Jackson? And she said, yes. I, and, but she said, but don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. The anesthesiologist is is well-trained, and he's, not going, to, he's going to watch. We won't give you very much, and, and uh, he's, not going to, uh, he, he's going to make sure that everything's okay. I said, well, it really doesn't matter to me. If I, uh, if I live, it's wonderful, but if I die, I'm going to be going straight to heaven. I'm totally confident of that, so I'm not concerned at all. She kind of stopped and looked at me and said, uh, really? She said, well, I'm glad you're so confident. I'm not. I work at it every day. I said, well, you know, the Bible says that you shouldn't work for it, that God already did all the work through Jesus Christ on the cross, and all you have to do is accept it. And it's a free gift. In fact, it's, the Bible specifically says it's not by work. And you could just see the wall come down like a guillotine blade. <laughs> she did not want to hear that. And as I um, looked at her, I, I thought, well, I, I, I couldn't read her name. My, I didn't have my glasses on, asked her, her name. I said, that's an interesting name. She said, well, it's Polish. So I'm thinking she must be Polish Catholic. So Polish Catholics are working their way, trying to work their way to heaven, and they don't understand that you can't do that. And it just amazes me today how many people think that somehow their good works are going to balance out whatever sin there is and, and, If you just stop and think about it a little bit when you talk to folks, you could always say, well, if you went your whole life without getting a single traffic ticket and then in your dotage when you're about 80 years old, you lost control, you stepped on the accelerator instead of the brake and went through through a crowd of people and killed 10 people and you went to court. Do you think that, that would you want to have a judge that would balance out 79.99 years of uh, excellent driving over against the 10 people you just killed? Not at all. Well, see, that wouldn't be just, would it? So why do you think a just God is going to somehow balance out your sin with the fact that there were opportunities you just didn't take advantage of? I 've asked that of a few people, and they once again, you sort of you, you know the, their eyes glaze over the sort of a guillotine comes down, and they just don't want to talk about it after that because they're comfortable in their suppressed uh, truth of unrighteousness. But sometimes we just have those little kind of bullet one minute opportunities to give the one minute gospel, but that's not the norm that's that's sort of like a drive by shooting. And we're not supposed, we shouldn't be engaged in drive-by evangelism. Uh, uh, There are those, and and, and, and in fact, this situation in Acts 8 is sort of that way. But this is a situation where the Ethiopian eunuch is well prepared. He already believes in the Old Testament. He believes, as I pointed out earlier, he believes in prophecy. He believes in uh, uh, the promised Messiah. He believes in everything, but he doesn't yet understand that the prophesied promised Messiah of the Old Testament is, is is Jesus. So as he reads through Isaiah 53, the Holy Spirit brings Philip to him to, uh, to, to explain it to him, and he asks the question, well, who's he talking about in this passage? Is he talking about himself or somebody else? And Philip took that opportunity then to explain uh, the Scriptures to him. That's in Acts chapter 8 verses 32 through 34. So we've been studying this now through five or six lessons because this is just such a remarkable prophecy from the Old Testament. It is a prophecy that's embedded within the second half of Isaiah. And the focus of this prophecy, this section, is on the future hope for Israel. And that future hope is a person It is identified as the servant. Now, there are other passages, as I pointed out, where the servant refers to Isaiah. The term my servant refers to Israel as a corporate entity, as a nation. There are other passages where my servant refers to any number of other individuals. But as you focused in on the the trajectory in Isaiah 40 to to, uh, 46, it becomes clear that at approximately chapter 46, Israel as a corporate entity, as a nation can no longer qualify to be that servant because the servant, as we'll see when we get down to Isaiah fifty three ten, has to be a righteous servant. And we'll see some passages this evening that show that, that or excuse me, 53.11, has to be a righteous servant, that Israel is no longer righteous, In fact, in the next next few chapters, Israel is no longer righteous. So Israel can't be that servant. That servant must be someone distinct from Israel, someone who is not suffering for their own misdeeds or their own sin, but for the sins of someone else. We've gone through a little bit of an outline of this section, which actually starts in Isaiah 52, 13. It's in the form of a chiasm, which is, a term derived from the fact that it looks sort of like uh, one side of an X. As you'll see as I've uh, shortened the lines a little bit, it points to the center part of, of the, the, uh, the, the section. And a chiasm always does that. It always points to whatever's in the middle. It, the rest of it leads to it, flows out of it, but what's, what's in the middle is the important part, and that's the emphasis on the atoning sacrifice of the servant. As we got into Isaiah 53 the last time, we talked about the opening three verses. The opening three verses seem to be a statement by a future group of Jews who look back in time to the time when this servant was on the scene, and they didn't realize who it was. They misidentified him because they thought he would come with all of the trappings of royalty, and that he would appear to be a ruler who would politically deliver them from uh, from their trials and from their political and military oppressors, and yet that isn't what happened. He appeared to be no different from anybody else. Nothing distinctive about him is that's brought out in the last part of Isaiah fifty three two. Uh, he had no form or comeliness. There was nothing that set him apart. Uh, he didn't look presidential. He didn't look uh, imperial. He didn't look like a great conquering general. He looked like everybody else. There was nothing distinctive about him. Uh, there was no beauty in him, nothing inherent in him that would cause people to flock to him because he he looked like a movie star or how many people think a a president should look. He didn't sound articulate, perhaps. He didn't fit their preconceived mold of what, uh, what this deliverer would look like. In fact, he, his message was not that he had come to deliver them politically, but he had come to deliver them spiritually, and so he was rejected. He was despised, rejected, and so he's, he's described in verse 3 as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because of what happened to him. And the writer says, uh, or these future uh, Jews say, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. They are admitting that we we really blew it. We just did not understand who he was, and so we rejected him. Now, in that verse, verse 3, there's the second line. He's called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I pointed out here... Uh, may not be real clear the way those boxes piled up there but these two words sorrows and grief are going to show up again sorrows and grief indicate something the first word sorrow uh is the word uh translated uh it's it's the word ka-a, ka'ev in the form of a pre- our, our noun or our participle here makaov, which means someone who ha- who goes through suffering and here it is, because of the context of the passage, the focus isn't on the fact that during his life he would have gone through times perhaps of suffering, but it's focusing on that ultimate suffering that uh, he went through on the cross. And he was acquainted with, with grief. And the word here that's translated as grief is a word that often has the idea of of sickness, physical sickness and it's, it, we run into it again a uh, couple of verses down when we, when we read about the fact that um, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, that's the same word, and carried our sorrows. That's the same word as sorrows here. That's why he's called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's further explained in verse 4 because he, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows And then when you get down to the end of verse 5, it talks about by his stripes we are healed. And there's terminology that's used in here that makes it sound like there's a physical healing from sickness. And this word uh, holy has that nuance. It's roughly equivalent to the New Testament word asthenes, there we find it 's frequently translated illness or sickness, but it 's also translated weakness many times in the New Testament because the core meaning of this word has something to do with with weakness or inability and it's, uh, in the Old Testament the word's often also used to relate to a calamity or judgment of God, uh, but it, it it has a core meaning of of someone who is weak, and that can mean in context somebody who 's weak physically and thus it comes to mean someone who's ill or sick, or it can refer to someone who is ill or weak spiritually, and thus it's dealing with a sin problem. And so the context is going to determine how this word is understood. And the reason I say that is because there are those you may run into who will quote these verses and say, See, Jesus died so that you can be healthy. This is a prime verse that the so-called health and wealth uh, gospel evangelists on television go to the the uh, so-called uh, prosperity gospel crowd, and this is this is what they one of the passages they base their their views on. But you see, all through here, as I'll point out, that these words for sickness and infirmities is talking about the result of a cause, and that's a figure of speech called a a, a metonymy where you put the effect for the cause. But the clear term, the the concrete term here that's not a uh, figure of speech are the terms that we find for sin, iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so when you have a word that is broad and can go in one of two directions, And it's used in synonymous parallelism with a narrower word. You have to look to the narrower word to define the broader word. And the broader word can refer to uh, spiritual sickness or sin or uh, physical sickness. And since it's used in conjunction with terms related specifically to sin, then it has to be understood in that sense that it's related to to sin. Now, it's not saying that the servant is a sinner, but in carrying our griefs and uh, our bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows, that in, in that aspect of his of his ministry, he becomes acquainted. He becomes uh, acquainted with our grief. Now, in verse four through six, it helps us to understand the core of what he does. I've covered some of this before, but I've added a few things. I This time I broke it down on the screen so that you would see the parallelism in the verses. This is poetry. Much of prophecy is written as poetry, and that's also important to understand because in poetry language is used in a more figurative sense than in historical narrative or legal language, and even in a lot of historical literature in the Old Testament, it's written in in poetry. So language has a has a little bit of a looser sense to it in in poetic language. When, if you were to read a Shakespearean love sonnet, you would not be de- you would not define the words there in as narrow and tight a way as you would if you found those words in a theological treatise or in a legal document. We know that that the kind of writing helps us to understand and and, uh, and, uh, it shapes our expectations of how the words are used. So as we look at this and focus on the fact that we have Uh, this this contrast between he, a masculine singular pronoun, and a plural pronoun, first-person plural pronoun, our. He versus we, he versus our. He is wounded, verse 5, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the sense here is clearly that of substitution and that he is something happens to him not because of what he has done, but because of what others have done, and he suffers in order to uh, suffers in their place so it gets a, <clears throat> begins with this word surely," which has the idea of breaking uh, into a new uh, focus from verse three verses one through three is the report from the Jews looking back on how they had blown it and not identifying him as as the servant and then verses four through nine focuses on what he did. He's born our griefs, And this word that's translated born is the Hebrew word Nassah, which is indicates lifting up or carrying something. This is a word that is used in, as I pointed out last time in passages related to sacrifices in the, in, in Leviticus specifically in the passage related to the day of atonement then on the Day of Atonement, two goats are brought to the high priest. He lays his hands on the head of each goat. He recites the sins of the people. And incidentally, the Day of Atonement is coming up on uh, September the 25th in the evening of Tuesday night, September the 25th, ending on at sundown on Wednesday, September the 26th. And that's, uh, this is the most significant sobering day on the Jewish calendar. In the ancient world, this is how, and in the Bible, this is how it was supposed to be, the ritual was, was supposed to be performed. One goat was, uh, these two goats are identified with the sins of the people. One is sacrificed because a death is required for sin. The other one is then taken off, uh, as Leviticus 16:22 says, to an uninhabited land and released in the wilderness so it can't return. The sins are removed completely from us. We also find this same word, and the reason I'm pointing this out is because all through this section you have a repetition of key words that ties everything together, makes it very clear what's going on. He carried, or he bore our griefs, and then when we get to Isaiah 53:12 at the end we read, at the last two lines, and he bore the sin of, of many. In the first part, he carried our griefs. Some people, some translations say he carried our sicknesses. How would how could you argue about that if you were talking to somebody? They said, "Oh, that means that we can be healed." Well, you take him to the parallel in verse twelve. Same verb, and it's re- it's very clear there that what he carries, what he bears, are the sins of many. He's not talking in verse 4 about, uh, or verse 3 about sickness. It's, and uh, excuse me, the beginning of verse 4 about sickness is talking about sin. He bore or he carried the sin of many. So he carries our, uh, he bears our griefs and he carries our sorrows. And this is a little different word. It's a Hebrew word, saval. And it means to bear a load for somebody else. It's only used a few times. It's used in Isaiah chapter 46 and in verses 4 and 7. It's very clear that it's talking in this sense of a of carrying something for someone else. In fact, in Isaiah 46 six, four, God is speaking. He says, even to your old age, talking to Israel, even to your old age, I am he. I am your God, he's saying. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry. Notice twice, that word carry is a translation of Saval. I will carry you and will deliver you. And that last line, the carrying is related to deliverance. And the word, Hebrew word for deliverance is a word uh, ka'av, which uh, is used, uh, excuse me, is a different word, I thought I had it on that slide, is a different Hebrew word, but it also relates to Salvation. So the carrying is a word that's loaded with a nuance related to deliverance and deliverance from sin. So Isaiah 53.4 says he's born or or, uh, he's carried our griefs, our sickness, and he's carried our sorrow or our suffering. Jeremiah 6.7 uses uh, this term again at the end of the verse notice the last line says before me continually are grief and wounds same word grief this is that, that first word uh, holy uh, sickness and wounds but what is that connected to it's the result the sickness and the wounds are the result of what happens in the previous line violence and plunder well what causes the violence and the plunder well you got to go back to the line before that it's wickedness so you see that this is, as I pointed out earlier, a figure of speech when he it talks about in verse four, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, that the griefs and the sorrows are the result of something else, and that something else are, is the sin that that underlies uh, the sin and the sickness that uh, the sin rather that is the ultimate cause of the Of the sickness if someone if an employer is uh, approached by someone for a job and that person the employer gives them a job uh, he looks at the person they're let's say a homeless person they look hungry and he says i will take away your hunger That doesn't mean that the employer is saying, I'm going to feed you, but he's going to pay him for the work done, and from the pay that the individual receives, he will be able to buy food. And so when the uh, employer says, I will take away your hunger, he's talking about using the same figure of speech, he would be saying, I'm going to produce the result. But in actuality, what he's going to do is produce the cause of the result. It's that uh, same kind of thing. So... Uh, these words, grief and sorrow, are talking about the end results. And and, and the other implication of that is that that Christ takes care of everything from A to Z, A meaning the cause of all of the suffering and sin in the world, as well as removing all of the results, that is, the sin and suffering in the world. So in that first part of the verse, we see that the, the suffering servant here is one who carries and takes away the results of sin. It has that strong uh, nuance from the Day of Atonement passages, words related to the ritual of Israel. And the last two lines talks about their response to him. He is doing all this wonderful thing for us, and we just didn't know who he was, and we considered him to be uh, stricken. And you have a series of three passive participles here in the Hebrew, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And it is God who is the one who does this. They just looked at him with all that happened to him, and they said, God must be bringing this judgment upon him. It's so interesting how we we as human beings jump to this conclusion that if somebody's going through hard times that God's punishing them. That's what Job's three friends were trying to convince Job of, but that wasn't true. We have such a superficial view uh, of suffering, and so that's their view. They looked at him. He's rejected. He's not accepted as the Messiah. God must be punishing him as they're thinking, and so they thought of him as one who was stricken, that had been uh, physically hit, uh, and that is used uh, in a figurative sense, by God. God is the one who had uh, rejected him and allowed him to go through this, uh, this suffering. This word that's translated stricken is a word that can means uh, someone who has, uh, has been hit with a disease. Suddenly they've discovered they have cancer. It's used, for example, of Miriam being struck with leprosy in Numbers chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, and also when King Uzziah who is king at the early stage of Isaiah's uh, time of ministry. Uzziah in 2 Kings 15, 5 was struck with leprosy. And it is it has this idea of someone uh, afflicting somebody with something. Then you have the two participles in the last line, smitten by God. It's the Hebrew word nakah. And afflicted, anah, and both of these are participles. They're passive participles. The hofal and the pu'al are the passives of the hifil and the piel. Now, doesn't that bless your heart? You know so much more now. But these are all, the reason I put that there is just so I can explain it. These are passives, meaning he receives, the, the servant receives the action of. Being struck, and the word for smitten means someone who is killed. It has a sense of being hit to kill. And so there's a sense here that, a clear sense here that this this suffering servant is going to die. That's embedded in the meanings of these uh, of these words. And he is uh, smitten by God. God is the ultimate one who allows him to be killed, to be crucified. Uh, as Peter says, God delivers him over. That's God's plan. Uh, and the Jews crucified him along with the Romans, and they just represent all of humanity. By the way, one of the most pernicious lies promoted by uh, some, sadly, by some Christians over the centuries has been that the Jews were responsible for killing Jesus, that the Jews are all cursed because of that, and that's a lie of anti-Semitism, And you and you all know that. But we're living in an age with a fresh rise of anti-Semitism today. Uh, recent things that I have read indicate that we're very uh, that that there's a very small number of Jews left in Norway, and probably within the next few months they will all leave Norway, and Norway will be what is called Judenrein. That's an old German word for Jew-free. Sweden is close, and uh, uh, some uh, and several other countries, including including uh, the Netherlands and France are seeing enormous numbers of Jews leave. Half the Jews in France have left within the last year or two, and many have moved to Israel. And the chief rabbi in France announced two weeks ago that the the French Jews are experiencing the greatest degree of anti-Semitic persecution since the time of World War II. In England, also, you have a large number of Jews are leaving because of the anti-Semitic environment. Much of this is being generated by the influx of enormous numbers of Muslims into Europe over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. And as their numbers increase, they become much bolder in their uh, opposition. You also have uh, continue to have episodes here in the United States. For example, there was a report on the news today of a Jewish student at a university in Michigan who was coming home from a fraternity party a couple of nights ago, and he was accosted by uh, a couple of other students who asked him if he was a Jew. He said yes. They raised their arms in a, in a Heil Hitler salute, and then they beat him up and they stapled his lips together. So these things are on, clearly on the rise, and it is a, uh, it is a horrible thing. Uh, on a positive note, if there anything positive can come of that, usually we hear people say, well, the, the existence, the ongoing existence and identification of the Jewish people is one of the great evidences of the truth of the Bible. This was a question that Frederick the Great asked of his chaplain, said, in a few words, can you tell me, give me some evidence that the Bible is true? And he, the chaplain answered, the Jews. Because they still lived, that's the positive. The negative is there's no other ethnic group in the history of the world that's as persecuted, that is as isolated and as distinguished as the enemy of humanity as the Jewish people. That's the flip side. Uh, it bears great testimony to the truth of scripture. They have been they are the chosen people of God, and the rest of the world hates anything that God approves. And so because they have been chosen and selected by God to be the uh, channel of blessing to the human race, specifically through the Messiah, that they are, uh, they are hated by Satan and hated by, by many. So uh, again and again, we see that the ultimate, the responsibility for the death of Jesus Christ isn't the Jews. It's the human race because there were many Jews who believed in him as Messiah. Uh, there were Romans as well as Jews who were responsible for his crucifixion. But ultimately, God allowed it because he had a plan to accomplish redemption, and there needed to be a sacrifice, a punishment that was substitutionary. And Jesus, as the eternal second person of the Trinity, had to die as the punishment for the sins of the world. So he is uh, smitten ultimately by God, and he is uh, afflicted. That means he's degraded, he's humiliated, he's oppressed. This is all of the mockings, the beatings, the scourging, the whipping that took place with his arrest. All is part of that term that he was afflicted. Then verse 5 focuses on his substitutionary work. He's wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now you notice I've color-coded the verse because there are four sets of, of, um, of word pairs in this verse. It's, it it 's Hebrew poetry which doesn 't rhyme words it rhymes ideas, and it the first line will be then uh, repeated, expanded on sometimes sometimes it's it 's just repeated uh, synonymously other times it's it 's embellished a little bit. but here we have a synonymous parallelism, so that we understand these two words, wounded and bruised because they're in synonymous parallelism. We have two different words for sin here, transgressions and iniquity. We have two different words for punishment, chastisement and stripes, the uh, whipping. And we have two different words for the solution, which is peace and heal. The heal here isn't referring to a physical healing from a disease. That becomes clear from other uh, words in, in the passage. So let's just look at these. The first word pair, there's eight key words here, Uh, wounded, transgressions, bruised, iniquities, chastisement, peace, stripes, and healed. The first word group, halal, is the word translated wounded, and it means to be fatally pierced through. It's not just that you poked your finger with a needle. It has the idea of something piercing through you, that kills you. And we're not talking about the, uh, spear of the Roman soldier that John records. That was to reveal that Jesus had died by that point because the blood separated into the, uh, red blood cells and the lymph. And that indicated that death had already occurred. This is, he's pierced. He's pierced by the nails that are driven through his, his wrists and through his, his ankles. Uh, that 's the first word he was wounded or pierced for our transgressions, and he is bruised literally crushed aka, indicating pulverized a word that is translated as pulverized, broken in pieces the noun form relates to dust, and so it indicates how he dies these These words when applied to a human indicate death death will come ezekiel twenty eight nine and uh, Ezekiel 32.26 used the word for uh, halal, for pierce, to cause death. And in Ezekiel 28.9, at the end, it's translated, in the hand of him who slays you. And in Ezekiel 32.26, it refers to those who are slain by the sword. So again, this passage is talking about someone who doesn't just suffer for others. He is going to die uh, for others but he dies specifically for their sins, their transgressions and iniquities. The first word translated uh, sin is the word pasha in the Hebrew, meaning uh, transgression. The idea of a transgression is someone who has violated a command, someone ultimately who has rejected the authority of someone else and has rebelled against that authority it's interesting when it's used in context not related to God, it relates to violating property rights of others. Once again, an affirmation that the Bible clearly affirms the right to own property, the right to enjoy the benefits of that property, and the right to use that property under the authority of God and not for the government to come in and, and tax it confiscatorially, which is what we have today where the government and some people in government think that they have a right to our property simply because they are the government. That is uh, completely unrecognized by God as a right of government. So this is a a key word there. It's a transgression. It means the rejection of God's authority and going our own way, doing our own thing uh, against God. And the second word, iniquities, is a word that uh, the Hebrew is avon, and it means an infraction. It has the idea of crookedness, of something that is is distorted, something that is perverse, and something that is iniquitous. Now, if you want to get an example of something that's perverse, you look at the, well, I understand the Democratic uh, Party now will be praying for their convention when it comes up. We'll need to but they have now adopted a, uh, positive, a positive statement in the platform of the Democrat Party in a, the approval and promotion of homosexual marriage. This means that, that there are a lot of flaws and problems with Republicans. They're not, they, they, they're not lily white, but the Republican Party has nothing in their, in their platform that is affirming, promoting, and advocating perversion and so the democrat party is now the party that promotes sexual perversion along with uh confiscating personal property under the guise of uh, uh of taxation so not only that uh, the only democrat basically only democrat politicians uh want the want to approve this UN treaty uh this new firearms uh, restriction uh, treaty that came up and fortunately was never made it to a vote at the end of July that would remove the ability of, of citizens to protect themselves from the intrusive tyranny of, of, of government. And so you have a political party now that not only is a, a, affirming uh, sexual perversion and promoting it, but they are approving of confiscatory taxation, and they are also wanting to take away, uh, you get, make an in run around the U.S. Constitution through a UN treaty that would take away our right to protect ourselves uh, through the personal possession of, of firearms and I haven't even gotten to the point yet that y'all are going to love that uh, the Democrats have rejected the request of a Roman Catholic priest to pray at the Democratic Convention, and they're going to have uh, a whole uh, day of what is called the Juma uh, Juma celebration of Islam as a prelude to the Democrat Convention. So y'all can figure out who you ought to vote for from there, but I think that ought to be pretty clear. That's not saying the Democrats, I mean the Republicans are Lily White. It's all all depends on other factors. Okay, so we have these two words transgression and iniquity. And we see this, these terms used in in relation to Leviticus chapter uh sixteen, which is on relation to the Day of Atonement. Uh Leviticus sixteen, fourteen to, uh, through Uh, About verse uh, 23 or 24 describes what happens. I've already gone through part of this. Verse 14 describes that the the bull is sacrificed and the high priest takes the blood of the bull, puts it upon the mercy seat uh, and sprinkles it on the mercy seat seven times. Verse 14, then he kills the goat of the sin offering. I've already talked about that. And brings its blood inside the veil, sprinkles it on the mercy seat, and thus, verse 16, "...so he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their what? Their pasha, their transgressions, for all their hatah, their sins, missing the mark, so he shall do for the tabernacle a meeting which remains among them in the midst of their cleanness." In verse 17, he says, There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, for all the assembly of Israel, and shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord, make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar, and uh, then sprinkle it on the altar seven times. Verse 20, let me see, down to verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat confess over it all the, what? Iniquities, the avon. The iniquities are uh, the avonot, it's in the plural, the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions, uh, 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 peshah there, uh, concerning all their sin, tata, hata'at there, um, putting them on the head of the goat and send them all away. So, the language that you have, pointing out there, iniquities, transgressions, and sin are, are mentioned several times on the Day of Atonement. They're mentioned several times in Isaiah chapter 53, which shows that this has a ritual connection that's connecting what the servant does with what is done uh, by the high priest on the Day of, of Atonement. See, and, and then as we go forward in Isaiah, look at these verses. In Isaiah fifty-nine two. These are are verses that show the servant can't be Israel. Why? Because your iniquities have separated you from your God. This is uh, God speaking to, or or Isaiah speaking to the uh, Jewish people. He says, your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. So they can't be the servant because the servant has to be righteous. In Isaiah 59, 12, at the bottom of the screen, for our transgressions, this is the response, our transgressions, uh, pasha, are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against you, for our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. So there's a recognition by the Jewish people that they're iniquitous, they've transgressed the law. They're not qualified to be the uh, righteous servant. And then in Isaiah 64, 6, we have a verse that I frequently quote, but look at verse 7 as we go through this. Verse 6 says, We are all like an unclean thing. How you can look at Isaiah 53, that all we like sheep have gone astray, and look at Isaiah 46, 6, that all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags and how Jewish rabbis can come to the conclusion that there's no such thing as as total depravity in the Hebrew Scriptures. All All of us like sheep have gone astray. All is a word of totality in Isaiah 53. We've all sinned, all of us. And we are, here in Isaiah 64, 6, we're all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. That sounds pretty total to me. And if your righteousness is like a filthy rag, that's depraved, total depravity. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities. This is what this servant pays for. Our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, speaking to God, and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Iniquities is used as a parallel here to the filth of the unrighteousness in verse 6. So the suffering servant is, is put to death. He's wounded, pierced fatally, and bruised, crushed to death for transgressions and iniquities. And this is a punishment, the chastisement and the stripes. The chastisement refers to a legal punishment and discipline. The stripes refers to the whipping, the blows from being whipped or beaten. And as a result of that, we have what? Peace, peace with God and heal. The word for peace is the word shalom, which is used of the peace offering And also the healing there, rapha, is a word that is often used to describe the healing of the relationship with God, primarily for healing of disease, but it also has a spiritual sense. Now, why is this necessary? Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. I don't know how many people here have ever spent much time around sheep. I can talk to Gene Brown about it sometime when he's here Gene uh, has some interesting stories. Back when I was younger and used to do a lot of backpacking in the high country in Colorado, there were always various shepherds who would take their sheep up near a uh, timber line. You'd run into them, to them there, and you'd watch the sheepdogs keeping the sheep together. But if you don't have the sheepdogs and the shepherds and trying to keep the sheep together, they go in every direction. They have, uh, they, they need a leader. They cannot take care of themselves. They don't pay attention to anything else and they all just wander off on their own with no thought for safety, no idea of anything, and they, uh, they would die. The, the existence of sheep is the greatest argument against Darwinian evolution that you'll ever see. And the reason is sheep can't survive without human beings. But according to Darwinian evolution, sheep evolved a long time before there was anybody to take care of sheep. So sheep have to be watched over, taken care of us. And we're the same way. The next verse says, each of us has turned to his own way. That's the, a, a, a more picturesque description of that word Pesha for transgression, going against the authority of God. It's, it's described here uh, much, uh, much more figuratively. In contrast, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. So we have the word iniquity repeated here, which means crooked or perverse behavior, and that falls upon him. It's putting a burden upon the servant. As a result of this, he's oppressed, he's afflicted, as he goes through all of the beatings and the sufferings where they beat him and whipped him until he was unrecognizable. The, the Roman soldiers basically played a game to see how, how much they could beat him, how much they could whip him and keep him alive. And yet throughout that, he did not say anything. He opened not a mouth. And then that's compared to a lamb. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. In in, in what sense? Uh, he, he doesn't open his mouth. He has no sense that he's getting ready to die. He makes no noise, and as a sheep before shears is silent. And I understand that from the beginning of recorded history, no sheep going to get, get his wool shorn has ever made any noise. And so this is proverbial. It is a universal truth. And so Jesus goes through this entire trial without saying a thing. Then he screams out only when... God judges him for the sins of the world. This is why he is silent, to show that contrast. Physical suffering was the, just about the worst anyone could possibly go through, and yet he didn't even moan or groan or whimper and whine. He didn't even blame George Bush for it. What a whiny president we have. I'm sorry. I'm just tired of hearing everybody blame somebody else for something and I'd say, well, that's the way it was, and I failed in accomplishing my task. Uh, you always got to blame somebody just because you're a whiner. Uh, as a sheep, so, so he opens up. He doesn't say anything. And we're told he's taken from prison in judgment. Jesus was arrested the night before he went to the cross as he was uh, praying with his disciples in an olive grove across the Kidron Valley from the temple, almost directly across from the east gate of the temple. it was a place where there was a huge olive press. Gethsemane means olive press. Olive press is where they would take uh, the olives and they would put them and squeeze them out and press all the olives out, sort of an imagery there for what was happening to the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of the pressure upon him. Uh, he's taken from prison, from judgment. And who will declare his generation? Um, he's been rejected. He's been oppressed. He's been completely uh, ig- ig- uh, ignored, arrested, seen as someone who's cut off the next part of the verse. He's cut off from the land of the living, which clearly means he's di- going, he dies. And this is for the transgressions of my people. Again, a preposition of substitution. For the transgressions, and here's that word Pesha again, of my people, he was stricken. The clear idea is that he is, uh, he is unworthy of punishment, but he takes on the punishment from others. And then, because he's dead, he has to be buried. And verse 9 is really interesting. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked. And some translations add men, so you realize it's plural. But he he they made his grave with the wicked, and but with the rich man at his death. And rich man is in the singular. Well, when he dies, he's with two criminals. That's plural. And when they bury him, he, they buried him in the grave belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy Pharisee, a secret believer in Jesus as the Messiah. And then we get his... His character analysis at the end of verse 9, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was innocent. The suffering servant here is without sin. He is has done nothing uh, for which to be punished. There's no guilt there. Now, this verse speaks of the fact that he has been arrested, taken from prison, and there were six trials of Jesus. All of them were uh, deemed to be illegal. And I remember years ago studying the Mishnah and going through the Mishnah and identifying the fact that, that the trials of Jesus were completely um, a complete violation of the laws in the, for trial. The tri- only weakness with that argument, and I believe that m- probably most of that was in effect, but the Mishnah is not written for another couple of hundred years or finalized for another couple of hundred years, and we don't know which of the laws related to uh, trials and just trials were uh, brought into effect after Jesus was arrested. In fact, it very well could be that some of these were put into effect because some saw the injustice in the arrest of Jesus. But based on the uh, uh, Mishnah, uh, they were not to have a trial on the eve of a Sabbath, they did it overnight. Uh, they were not to have a trial on a feast day at night. They were—they uh, would o- only—they weren't to have a trial unless witnesses were present on behalf of the accused. And <clears throat> they, it wasn't—they weren't supposed to have the high priest speaking before those of lesser authority. So there is a—it um, uh, it was an illegal trial. But nevertheless, we all know that even if these laws were all in effect at that time, that that has never stopped self-righteous men from violating the law to achieve their own arrogant arrogant ends. There were actually six trials. Jesus was first taken before Annas at night. Annas was the former high priest, and he's the father, father-in-law of Caiaphas, and he is the power broker in Jerusalem. Uh, then he was taken before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Then all this is at night, and so to give it a, uh, a veneer of legality after dawn, he's taken before the Sanhedrin again. They can't uh, execute him. They don't have that authority, so they take him to Pilate. Pilate can't find anything wrong with him, so he's going to pass the buck and sends him to Herod Agrippa, who is in town for the feast day. Herod Agrippa says, well, this isn't my venue. I'm going to send him back to Pilate. And so he sends him back to Pilate. So there were actually six different trials before Jesus is finally sentenced to execution. And then we come to the uh, conclusion in verses 10 through 12. And I will wrap this up next week, and then we'll be back into, uh, into our study in Acts as we just connect the two one more time, finish up this particular uh, this particular study. But it's important to see the connections. I want to do this so you don't forget it. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's a word, dachah, we saw it already, to crush, to pulverize, to break in pieces. He has put him to grief. Notice the parallelism between the grief and the crushing. That helps us understand what it means that he's a... Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief earlier in the passage. It's talking about his suffering on the cross. Uh, When you make his soul an offering for sin, that's another important word. It connects it back to the Levitical offerings. He was seen, the suffering servant is seen as a sin offering, a trespass offering as described in Leviticus 5, uh, 6 and 7 and 5.15. And then uh, his role is to justify many. I'll come back and talk about that next time. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these verses, to see the, uh, how clear the substitutionary aspect is of the role of the servant and that he is righteous and that Israel is unrighteous. But in your grace, you provided a perfect servant, a perfectly righteous servant, who can by his death and payment on behalf of uh, sin that he can justify many. And that justification is a free gift, and it's not on the basis of works, but it's on the basis of simply a gift, accepting a free gift that you have given us and that we might clearly understand that you have provided salvation for us as a free gift And it's not on the basis of who we are or what we do. Father, we thank you for this clear prophecy that is fulfilled so literally in Jesus of Nazareth some 600 years later. And that this is, again, a clear validation of the truth of your word. And we pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us with what we studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.